Good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community Church. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. John 14. We took a two-week break to look at the cross and the resurrection. So as it were, in, in where we were in John, we sort of fast-forwarded. And now we're going back to where we started. This is part of the upper room discourse. It goes all the way to John 17. This is one of those mountaintop passages that, you know, the pastors just can't believe he gets to preach. And, um, but we're going to look for, for two weeks. We're going to be in John 14. We're going to look at the first 14 verses this morning. When we get to the end of John 14, we're going to put the car in park in our journey, so to speak. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit for four weeks. And so super excited about that. Stand with me as we look at God's Word today. We're just going to read the first six verses to get us going. John 14, verses 1 to 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's room, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of God. Lord, we have gathered in your name but we come here as troubled people sitting at your feet just like your disciples were some of us are troubled because of our past these things in our past haunt us sins done by us sins done to us some of us are troubled in our present today God we don't know what tomorrow looks like. Some of us are troubled by our future. And so, God, we need something from you today that we cannot give ourselves, but that, our, that is ours in Christ. And so, Lord, we come with our Bibles open, expecting from you today that by faith, you will give us peace and comfort and confidence and assurance and wisdom because your son is alive and ever intercedes for us. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So you are optimist, a pessimist, or a realist. So if you're a pessimist, you call yourself a realist. You may be a pessimist and in denial. Here's the way you know if you think you're a realist and you're really a pessimist, you're always on the negative side of that realism. Always expecting something bad to happen. Always warning everybody else about what's about to happen. And so today, we as Christians should be realist, but we should be optimistic realist. We don't only know the beginning of the story. We know the ending of the story. We know the God of the story. We know that He is 
wise, he is powerful, he is good. We know his son. We've been talking about him for the last two weeks, that he entered into time and space, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose again. And so John 14 is concerned by giving us the cure for the troubled soul. He's going to make the case, as he's always been, that that is faith, and we'll get to that. But let's talk about what the cure is not. The cure is not faith in faith. That's just popular in the biblical South. It's really faith in my faith. It is, I got faith because I prayed a prayer. I got faith because I signed a card. I got faith because I had a really godly grandma. We can have faith in faith. And that won't cure the troubled soul. We can have faith in someone else's experiences. Or even our own experiences. Devoid of God's word. Looking for some kind of experience. I read a book a while back. Probably shouldn't admit it, but I did. It was a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. It was written by a guy named Don Piper. Not John Piper. Don Piper. He died and supposedly went to heaven. Here's what he said. He writes, I've changed the way I do funerals. Now I speak authoritatively about heaven from first-hand knowledge. That is not the cure for the troubled soul. He has turned his experience, he has turned faith in his words and moved faith in God's words completely out of the equation. It's dangerous. It's subtle. The secret to being optimistic realist is be able to look and see our trouble for what it is, but in the same hand, be able to look and see the promises and the person of our God and respond. That's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing his disciples, our main idea. He's preparing his disciples for his home going by giving them the precious promises of the Father's house. There's really three promises. We're going to look at two of them this week, the third one next week, and that will launch our Holy Spirit series. Let's look at the first two, the promise of the Father's house. Promise of the Father's house. Look at verse 1. We see the troubled heart. This is the context. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you remember verse chapter 12 and chapter 13, Jesus is the one with the troubled soul. A little bit of this, if you've listened to the last couple messages, the selfless care of our Lord. You see it not only on the cross, you see it here. He's troubled. He's, he's going towards the cross. He's going to face the wrath of God for our sins. And in turn, what does he do here? He deals with the troubled soul of his disciples who were confused, they were scared. First, Judas is going to betray us, then Peter is going to deny us, and then you're going to leave. I mean, they had been with Jesus 24-7 for three years, and he keeps talking about leaving and dying. And He said it so much that I think they're beginning to think it might be true. You can tell because they're troubled. So God gives them a promise. And then he calls for a response. We're going to look at the responses at the end. The promises of a place. A place. Look at verse 2. 
in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's a real place. A place that he's going to, a place that he promises to, to lead us to. Home is important. You actually know that you've become an adult when you begin to realize that. And you will one day. Home becomes a place that you look forward to leaving until you become a little bit older and then you realize how important home is. Home's important. Home is a real place for us. Hebrews 11. You know Hebrews 11. It's the by faith chapter. You remember Abraham. He lived basically as a nomad by the promises of God. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says this. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God it's just what I want I don't want you to simply say heaven this morning I want you to understand this is the father's house key word father is his house a little bit later in John 20 he says I go to my father and to your father no longer his house because of Christ it is now our house. Heaven is a place. It's lasting. It's permanent. It is an eternal dwelling. That's the point here of the text. Again, in Hebrews 13, verse 14, this is the way we live our everyday. For we have no, verse 14, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come little sidebar I'm still trying to as a as a country boy I'm still trying to get over the fact that this place is is in the city but I guess God will fix that when he glorifies me or maybe this city's not what I'm expecting it's better it points the father this is not gonna have to pull this out of our mind because the the King James translates this mansions that's not a good translation because of what we do with it and what we have done with it this is dwellings, dwelling places in the Father's house. <laughs> I got a rather large family. So if you go somewhere, let's say you're going to go to Disney, you know, just too bad is not enough, <laughs> right? You can't put everybody in there. The idea here, here is not of you're going to have a double bed. The idea here is of a suite. You see, when we go on vacation, we either got to rent a house or a suite. We've got to have more places for people. This is the idea. It is a suite in the Father's house. And it's ready and it's reserved and it's guaranteed. This is a place. But make no mistake. This is a family place. And I pray today if there's one thing that God might do in your heart is repent of what we have created the church to be. Because the church is supposed to be a piece of heaven. And heaven is a family place. The Father is the main character. If you're old or young today, you can do this in your Bibles, in your chapter right now, even as I'm preaching. If you can't concentrate, do this. Count the number of times Father is in this chapter. I counted at least 22. He's the main character. This is a family place. This is his house. Listen to J.C. Ryle. You can't say it any better than this. Home is a place where we are generally loved for our own sake and not for our gifts or possessions. 
The place where we are loved to the end, never forgotten and always welcome. Believers are in a strange land and at school in this life. In the life to come, they will be at home. Augustine said it this way, Thou hast created us for thyself, and our hearts cannot be quieted till we find our rest in thee. Jesus tells us that the longing for home that's inside of all of us is a longing to be in the Father's house. Another commentator said it this way, So wonderful is Christ's love for His own that He is not satisfied with the idea of merely bringing them to heaven. He must needs take them into His own embrace. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. He's gone, you see, to prepare a place for us, for you, for His own. So this is a real place. It is a family place. It is a prepared place. Now, did Jesus go home to his father and put on his tool belt, get his spiritual frame and hammer? Or maybe he's got a glorified pneumatic hammer. We don't swing hammers much anymore. Is that, is that what he means? In, in what way does he prepare a place for us? Well, he's already told us in John 13. Told Peter, remember? Where I'm going, you can't come. Where I'm going, you don't have the ability to come. That caused some questions. <laughs> Lord, where are you going? Uh, Thomas, you'll see it comes up here in verse 5. Uh, Lord, we don't know the way. So this is important. Jesus prepared a place for us by removing the obstacle of our sin. There was something in the way to get to the place. Not everybody goes to the Father's house. There is an obstacle to the Father's house, and the obstacle is our sin. Psalmist said it this way, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He do not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Anybody never done that? That's a problem. How does he prepare a place? The preparation of the place is not hammer and nails. It is a bloody cross and an empty grave. That's how he prepares a place for us. He's going to the cross. And he's going to remove the obstacle, any obstacle that stands in the way of his children coming to the Father's house. Hebrews 6.20 says this, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We do not have to sit around and talk to the preacher or a priest because we have the high priest Jesus, who was our prophet, our priest, and our king, who went home to the Father's house before us and has promised to come and get us. Heaven is a real place an eternally prepared family place that we simply call home. This is our destination. But what's the pathway? 
How do we get there? Second, promise. This is just as much a promise as heaven. There is a pathway. There is a pathway to the Father's house. Look with me again at verse 4 to 6. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. doesn't take long as you're in life and talking to people and even those that we love to realize some are on a pathway to somewhere and some seem like they're on a pathway to nowhere. You see, a way or a path a way is a path between a starting point and an ending point. And so, maybe here, maybe listening and said, you know, this, this heaven mess sounds nice, but it's just not realistic. In our worldview class, we've been talking about naturalism. This idea, this view of life that says there's, there can be no interference from the outside. No supernatural is possible. So, I may ask you something. If that is true... If the, what is your end point? Fertilizer. That's your end point. Deal with it. If we're a realist and no supernatural, then there is no destination other than the ground to become dirt. Is there any reason, any shock to us that there can be no purpose? If there is no destination, we are just like a pet goldfish to be played with by someone powerful, to die and have been flushed down the toilet. It's just not what the Lord has promised us. It's not our good news. <laughs> we do not have to wander around aimlessly as if life has no point. The promise is a present promise of a future destination. It is a present promise. Jesus doesn't say... In verse 4, you will know. He says, you already know. The destination, make sure we get this clear. It's not some mansion where we're going to get our own big house to play football in the backyard. No, no, this is the Father's house. This is the place of rest, but it is not a place of idleness. It is not a place of apathy. It is a place to go when the warrior gets through with the battle that he's been assigned to. And he goes to the Father's house. Place of rest. But the pathway is Christ. The pathway is Christ. This is what he says. Clearest text in Scripture. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's where I'm trying to explain this morning it's not my understanding and many understanding that this is simply saying I am A, the way B, the truth and C, the life rather this is an elliptical statement one of which if these two things and yes we'll even make three is true then Jesus is the only way he says I am the way because I am the truth and because I am the life I am the way because I am the true and only revelation of God. I am the way because I alone have the power of eternal life. I am the way. He is the way to the Father's house. He is the way to peace with God. 
And he's been making this argument John has through his whole book. Just listen to this. You know these passages. John 6, 35. He is the bread of life. He is the only source of satisfaction for the hunger of our soul. John 8, 12. He is the light of the world. The only God that can lead mankind out of ungodliness to godliness. Out of darkness to light. He is the door. He is the only way to get into the family. He must adopt you or you are not in. He is the good shepherd. The only one who laid his life down because he loved you. And in John 11, he makes this amazing statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet will you live. And then he proved by raising Lazarus from the dead. He's been making his case. He's just laying it on the table right now. I am the way. This is radically exclusive. It is. It's why people hate it. Christianity is exclusive. It's true. Not because of who it lets in. We are no country club where you got to pay your dues. This is not about who. This is about how. Listen to Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. Anyone may come, but there's only one way. This is not about who. This is about how. Jesus alone is the way. In case we doubt that's what Jesus says, listen to Acts 4.12. And there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must be saved. I am the way because I am the truth. He is the revelation. He is the illumination. Christ is the truth. Indefinite article, the. Without Him, the wisest, the smartest, the people who think they can colonize Mars, the smartest people in the world can't figure out where the origin of everything came from. They're blind. They're blind to God's truth. That's what Ephesians 4.18 says. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of their heart. On the other side of this, Colossians 2.3 says, In Jesus Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Matthew 24.35 Jesus says this about himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I am the way because I am the truth. I am the word of God made manifest. I am the revelation of God. John 8, 31. Jesus says this about himself. If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, put John 14 together with that. What is he saying? And you will know me, and I will set you free. And if Christ has not set you free, you are not free. And if you are not free, you will have no peace until Christ sets you free. I am the way because... I am the truth. I am the way because I am the life. Why is that important? 
Well, we know Romans 6.23, don't we? The wages of sin is death. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3, we are spiritually dead. Apart from Christ, we are dead. We can't do anything spiritually for ourselves. We can't earn our salvation. Without Christ, life is just a living death. The life of a glorified goldfish living in a bowl without satisfaction and hope. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life. Not just a life, not just any life, not just keep my chin above the water life, but abundant life. The resurrected life that He gives us. We are here today because He wants to give us something. We had nothing to give today but our worship, and we seek to give it. But we have come today to receive. He wants to give us assurance, hope that motivates Christ-centered, holy living in our lives so that our lives look like Jesus and not the world. What He promises to us. There is a path. We love John 3. We love the conversation with Nicodemus. Everybody knows John 3.16. John 3.36. It's not in your notes, I don't think. It says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's only one way to eternal life, and it is through Jesus, because he is eternal life. He has another one here. I'm not going to spend much time on it. We've spent a lot of time on it, but it's, it's, it's critical to his argument that he is the way. Verses 7 to 11. He's saying, I am the way because I and the Father are one. Jesus is hung up on this in a glorified way. Philip says, Lord, it's just, just show us the Father and it'll be okay with us. We'll be, we'll be good. It'll calm us down, God. Just sort of that Moses thing. Just peel back the veil. One more miracle then. If you're leaving, do one more miracle. Peel back the veil. Show us the Father. We'll know the way. Jesus is doing something. John is wanting to make sure we get this. That their, their whole life has been waking up to see Jesus. And a new reality has come. That seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. So he makes his argument that you should believe me because of my words. Verse 10. You should believe me because of my work. Verse 11. That all of Jesus' life. A reflected what the Father had told him to do. Does yours? Does our words and our work point people to the Father? Do people know by the way we're dealing with the trouble that is in our life now that we have been with Jesus? Jesus says to know me is to know Him. To see me is to see, is to see Him. To follow me. Is to do the works I do. And I only do what I see my Father doing. To follow me. You see? Get this picture. To follow me is to arrive safely at our destination. Because he is headed to the Father's house. And he and the Father are one. <laughs> In other words, not a chance he's not going to get there. So do you get this this morning? Jesus is the way. 
He is our reconciliation that removes the obstacle from the path. That is our sin. He is the truth. He is our illumination. He brings us what, who God is and what God has done so that we might have life and have it abundantly. He is our regeneration. He brings us not an old life cleaned up, but a brand new one. And since Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, He calls us to faith in Him. This is our application. This is our so what. This is our response. We come back to where we begin. How do we gain comfort in times of trouble? Of times of confusion? One of the hardest things to deal with in life is this truth. God knows what's going to happen tomorrow, but he's not going to tell you. And listen, I know that's hard. God knows it's hard. That's why he's spending so much time with his disciples. This is hard. But there's only one way to get peace. Placebo is not going to help. Only one way to get confidence. Only one way to get rest. Again, J.C. Ryle had some of the best insights this week. He said, the troubled heart is the age-old disease of our soul. For which God only gives one remedy, faith. Faith. So three truths I want you to see. Three truths you want you to see. Before I start these, I hope you're in a small group. Because as you can tell, I have left a lot of meat on the bones today. <laughs> as I do every week. It's just the wonder, wonder of God's word. But we, we're going to flesh some of these things out in our small groups. And I'm trusting in them to help me do that. Number one, we trust in the person of Christ and the person of the Father. Or we could say it this way, we must trust in our triune God. It is hard to believe in a God who does not love us if you have a God who does not love. If a God that has not been internally in a love relationship for eternity. But we have a triune God, three in persons, but one God. We trust in Him. Look at verse 1 again. He gives this at the beginning. <laughs> Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is an imperative imperative. Right? Usually you have like He tells us. He tells you something just true. Then He tells you something to do. <laughs> just tells us. Believe. Believe. Remember what we've said. He's... They have lived 24-7. When they woke up in the morning, Jesus was there. When they didn't know the answer to the question, when they didn't understand the parable, Jesus was there. When they didn't know what to do because people wanted to kill them, Jesus was there. And now he says, I'm not going to be there. Believe in me. He's not just saying, trust me. He's saying, Trust that what I say is true. There's a difference, you see. We can have faith in our faith. You can have faith in your decision and be lost. Do you believe that what he says is true? Because our very lives depend on it being true. The only response that leads anyone into the Father's house 
is faith in the promises of our triune God from a God who cannot lie. Jesus is in the upper room discourse without going ahead. In John 17, he is going to entrust these men whom he loves to the Father. He's leaving. He trusts them to the Father. But here's number one. Before he gets there, he says, you must trust in your God. Because you've got no idea what tomorrow looks like. They don't, and neither do you. Who are we trusting here? We see it in verse 12. It leads us to our second truth. John 14, verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. We trust in Christ and his promises in order to actually do something. Do you see it? We trust in Christ to do greater works through us. Now, just get a hold of that one for a minute. How in the world can you do a greater work than Jesus Christ? Quoting, John Calvin says this way, The reason why the disciples will do greater things than Christ is that he has entered into the possession of his kingdom and he will demonstrate his power more fully from heaven through us, through his people. Is entered into his kingdom. He is sitting on his throne. No more bloody cross. The king is on the throne. And there is a work to do. And the work is the gospel. This is the gospel work. Listen, this is the easiest promise for you to understand, no matter where you are in your life, to understand that this is exactly what he promised, and this is exactly what has happened. And we only have our head stuck in the sands of history if we don't understand it. You see, there were some 500 in 1 Corinthians 15 that witnessed the resurrected Jesus. In Acts 1, verse 15, it says there were about 120 there praying, waiting on the Spirit. And then Pentecost fell. Thousands come to Christ. AD 250. That's why Christians were still suffering. 1.1 million, according to one church historian. By the 4th century, they would be some 33 million. Have you counted them lately? Should have gone, well, not all of those are Christian. Listen, you were proof. You Gentile. You Gentile, you were proof. That the promises of God to bring salvation to the nations is true because here we are in North America worshiping the risen Lord. It is true. There is greater work to be done. He promised it. He promised He would do it through us. He promised, listen, this is a small group, but don't miss verse 13. He promised we'll do it through prayer. Promised it. How's your prayer life? Do you only pray for you know the what you can do? Or do you pray for something that only God can do? Number three, 
trust that when our mission is done, Christ will bring us safely home. We have this assurance. You want to be, you want to be bold in the mission of God. Understand this. Your suite is reserved. That God's not ready. There's still greater work to be done. And when you understand that it begins with prayer, and it comes out of your words and your works, then you are beginning to understand the purpose of life. He says this, verse 3, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to where? Myself. Where I am is where you're going to be. By the way, that's the point of eternity. That's the point of heaven. That's the point of the new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, therefore, since this is true, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Christ has commanded us, because He promised to be with us to the end of the age. And so God's people live with this tension of longing to be home, knowing this is our destination. We are here. And so we say, Lord, we will help people follow you. We will help people know you. But every night when we lay down and every morning when we get up, we will say, come, Lord Jesus. But until then, God has called you to be faithful, brothers and sisters. So let us be faithful disciple-makers not wandering anywhere, but following Jesus safely to the Father's house. Let's pray. And so, Lord, what a passage could preach it three or four times and never mind the depths of the wonder and the promises and the goodness that is in this passage today. Thank you for your word, Lord. The next week we can meet again and open the same up and start with the next verse and see what you have for us. But, oh, Lord, that your people would be a word people. God, we pray. I pray for those in this room. I pray for myself that have a troubled soul. There's things in our life, God, that we can't fix. And so, we pray to the only one who can. And so, we've come to a time of response. We're God by faith now. We're going to lay our troubles at your feet. These things that we don't even know, Lord, we don't even know how to pray for them, but we lay them down anyway. And thank you that you ever intercede, your son does for us. We have come now, Lord, to the time to celebrate our peace. We have come both to worship you at the table and to receive something at the table. We have come to acknowledge that we could not save ourselves, so 
You sent your son, and we are going to take the bread in our hands for Christ died. We are going to take the cup in our hands because your son shed his blood for us, and yet he lives now. We're going to remember that one day we will be with you face to face. We come to the table to say we are in need of grace. Amazing grace. And so we come to the table, Lord. Give us the grace that we need as we worship you, as we serve you. We are in need, God of the grace and the promises that you have promised your blood-bought children. And so, Lord, we receive those by faith today. All that you have for us. And so, God, help us to be the worshipers both now and in this life. Receive our worship as we receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.